and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast by the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I am your host tonight, Gavin Tolomini, and I am joined with... Connor. And today, we are joined by my friend and lab mate, uh, Josh Hefpep. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So, um, in the la- same lab, like I know that you like to go a bit further than planet Mars. You look at particularly moons, but you have one moon that you really like to focus on. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about this moon? Sure. Um, Titan is its name. It is Saturn's largest moon. And in fact, it is the second largest moon in the solar system, even bigger than Mercury. So it's a pretty big moon. And what sets it apart from not just the terrestrial planets, but just the other moons like it, is that it's a big ball of ice, so basically it's an icy moon, and it's covered with a thick atmosphere. It's about one and a half um, ATM. So we're talking uh, the atmosphere itself, has is it's, it's pretty thick. It's comparable to Earth's. It's mostly nitrogen like Earth, and it has a little bit of methane. Now, you couldn't breathe it because there's no oxygen there, but it's interesting because this methane and nitrogen, when it interacts with uh, cosmic radiation, it get, gets torn apart, basically, ionized and dissociated. So we're talking about the formation of uh, individual elements recom- that, that are charged and recombined to form heavier organics. This is what f- causes this haze that you would see if you see a picture of it in visible light. Basically, you can't see the surface because there's this material known as the organic sort of forming the atmosphere that uh, prevent light from coming through. But it's interesting because these are called organics, these heavy organics, and also including things called tholines. They're interesting because they're sort of like a precursor to life. Uh, meaning, you think about what came before life, there was this chemistry of carbon and nitrogen and hydrogen. And when it gets introduced to, to oxygen, um, it begins to produce things like amino acids. These are the things that produce po- proteins, and proteins produce DNA, and so on and so forth. So Titan is like a prebiotic uh, laboratory of sorts that's naturally forming. Now, it's more interesting... It's interesting not just because of the chemistry, but also from geologically speaking. It has the atmosphere. With an atmosphere comes atmospheric processes like wind. Uh, there's also rain, but not water because it's about 94 Kelvin. We're talking 200 below freezing just about. And so what it's raining is methane. That methane that's in the atmosphere can be both a, a vapor, but also a liquid on the surface. We have rivers of methane. We have giant lakes of methane. We're talking... <clears throat> lakes that are as big as the Great Lakes, some that are even bigger. So some are actually referred to as seas because they're so big. Most of them are in the northern regions, the northern poles, so they don't cover the entire planet or, or moon like on Earth. But it is a substantial part of the surface. In fact, if you look over the surface, there are rivers all over the place, even if there aren't lakes. Um, and they play an important part in the geologic process. In addition to the rivers, I'd say the second most important feature uh, process that modifies the surface would be sand uh, and sand so the sand covers the equatorial region so the middle part of the, of the moon we're talking giant sand dunes that form around the entire equator and these sands are actually made of the same particles that form this haze in the atmosphere these organics that I talked about being so interesting from a chemical perspective as far as how it can produce life and they're all over the surface but because they form sand particles they also can can modify the surface by just covering things up. So it's a mixture of sand and, and rain processes can do a lot to change the surface geolo- geologically speaking. And that actually was the basis for one of my master's research. Um, my newest research has been more focused to the astrobiology side because when you think about this chemistry here that we have, it what can it do 
in this type of environment? Well, not a lot, to be honest, because you for these these molecules to be interesting, you want them to inter- interact with water because you need oxygen to introduce to be mixed with these organics. And the only way to do that on on Titan because you don't have a lot of oxygen in the air is to mix it with liquid water. But like I said before, it's 94 Kelvin. It's way too cold for for water. But there are a few geologically rare instances where you can get water. Um, things like cryovolcanoes, which are basically just volcanoes with water coming up from its its uh, ocean mantle. Um, I guess this is a good time to stop and sort of give you an idea of what the interior looks like because just like on Earth, it's not just all ice or, or rock below the surface. You have the atmosphere, you have a layer of ice maybe 100 kilometers thick. And then below that, because things are getting warmer, mostly due to radia- uh, radioactive decay in, in the interior and um, that's the, the primary heating source, things get warmer. And because of that, you have a change in phase from ice to liquid. So you have this thick layer of liquid ocean, we hypothesized to actually be mixed with a bit of aluma, uh, ammonia, I mean, that helps it be more stable at lower temperatures. And then because Titan is so big, it has so much water that if you keep going down deeper and deeper, there is so much water there that even though it's warmer in the interior, it turns into its high pressure phase of ice. We're talking basically solid ice, but it's the structure of it on a, on a molecular level is just different. Because, it, because of the pressures being forced on it. And below that, we know there's a, a rocky core. We think it's a silicon core. But I, I think that's the general overview of, uh, of Titan. So that's, that's a really interesting idea. But, but, but something I'm always thinking about is a lot of mixing needs to be happening. And I know you said that the radiation from the radiation that's just bombarding these uh, planets is something that can ionize the methane in the atmosphere you said that allows it to become these uh so the first off the radiation we're talking about is it's mostly uv radiation from the sun yeah some cosmic radiation too but yeah so it's actually not just the methane so the nitrogen it's nitrogen and methane mostly in the atmosphere and basically nitrogen is going to be in two and methane is going to be carbon and hydrogen, CH4. Right. And basically you have these molecules, and when it gets hit by UV radiation, it can break those bonds that are forming these molecules. So you're going to have basically little atoms of, of nitrogen, of carbon, and of hydrogen all floating around, but they're not going to be a, a whole atom. They're going to maybe be charged a little bit because right. uh, because the other parts of the electrons or so are, are, are on the other part of the, of the molecule. The point is, is you have a lot of this because the, the moon itself is, is fairly old. The surface is thought to be 200 million to a billion years old. But the atmosphere, uh, it's changed over the time, but it's probably been there for most of its lifetime. And so it's, it's constantly undergoing this process. And while the atmosphere, there is there are atmospheric processes that cause some circulation to go on. It's not necessarily my, my field of expertise when it comes to the atmospheric processes overall. I understand the chemist- chemistry side of it and understanding the formation of these molecules, but I, I don't know necessarily the dynamics as much of the atmosphere. All I know is that there are a lot of organics. We're talking things as simple as HCM to things that I don't even remember what they're called, but we're able to identify just a huge range of, of molecules that are just a, an abundance of different types of molecules. And the, the abundance of chemistry is where it makes it so interesting, because when you have different types of chemistry, you can do different types of uh, different kind of kinds of things can happen when you get an opportunity to mix with water. And yeah, and so all they need is that oxygen from water. We have huge diversity in these, um, essentially hydrocarbon simple molecules with nitrogen as well, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and then all they're doing is kind of waiting for water. 
so which is a pretty rare event. Wouldn't they a, also maybe missing a like a spark of energy, probably to also ignite that reaction? Yeah. Th- that's a good question. So to be clear, when we talk about when it's waiting for water, if you're thinking about it from an astrobiology perspective, sure, it's waiting for water. I mean, it, I th- I'm sure there are plenty of interesting things you can ask yourself about this chemistry that doesn't necessarily just pertain to the water. Um, methane is also a possible solvent for life. We don't think it's – I'm not necessarily um, as well-versed in that because when you think about a different solvent than water – when it comes to life, it's much more difficult to hi- think about the type of life that could thrive there. But when it comes to forming life as we know it, amino acids, yeah, you need the oxygen from water. You can get chemical em- energy. Basically, when you have different chemistry, the when, inter- when interacting with different different types of uh, molecules, in one instance being water, the energy itself could just be the way they interact. That's what's so great about water is that, that you have the hydrogen bonding that... Um, can be, it's really good at dissolving things and forcing them things to, to react. That's what makes water such a good solvent. So that's really where the energy is coming from there. And when you think about life, the, the chemistry is the, is the energy in this situation. From a, going back to mentioning methane as a potential solvent, um, that's actually a big problem of thinking of methane as for life is because methane to be liquid has to be very cold. Mm-hmm. The colder it is, the much slower the chemistry is going to be, which is one of the problems with a methane-based life. But as far as where you get liquid water, they are about as, it's about as rare as getting liquid rock on Earth, except I would say that liquid water is probably a bit more stable for a longer period of time. It'll take longer to freeze than, say, how quickly wa- rock can freeze on Earth. So you have things like, say, the cryovolcanoes, which I think I may have mentioned before. These I don't think are very common. Um, one reason being that unlike on Earth, where, me- where you can have a, a volcano formed by, by hot lava, which the magma is going to be more less dense than the rock itself. One like water, which if the the ice, the ice rock, it, the solid is going to be more less dense than the it's going to be less dense than the water, the liquid water. So mm. liquid water, if you have liquid water there, is going to want to stay down due to the, due the buoyancy differences. So it's a bit more complicated. But we do have at least one, maybe two lines of evidence where we, we, we think we see a, a cryovolcano. That's an instance where you might see liquid water on the surface. And it's somewhere like, say, say you wanted to investigate this chemistry more closely, you might go there and you might try to get a sample of ice that might have mixed, it might have once been liquid and mixed with the chemistry. Now, personally, I don't think if you say you're making a mission, like say Dragonfly, which is a mission that I want to plug in a minute, but it's if you wanted to go to Titan and sample the ice, um, cryovolcanoes I don't think are the best best place to look at. One reason is that the cryovolcanoes themselves, the water is coming up from the ocean, and because it's mixed with ammonia, even though it's a bit warmer than the surface, it's still fairly cold, colder than free, than freezing probably. And remember, again, energy, the colder something is, the more, more slowly the chemistry is going to happen. There's a better opportunity, I think, that's present on the surface, which is in the form of impact cratering. Impact cratering is when you have a, a large uh, object from outside the, of a planet basically come in and collide with the surface. We, get, we see this on Earth, of course. We see this on every planet. And there are plenty of them on, on Titan. And basically, when it forms, not only is it going to excavate, push stuff out, it's also going to vaporize some material, and it's going to melt some material. So basically, what you have left over from from a fresh crater is going to be a puddle of water on Titan. On Earth, it'd be a puddle of um, of, of liquid rock. But of course, in this case, the rock is water, to remind you. So you'd have like a giant puddle, possibly hundreds of meters thick of water. And because it's so big and so thick, they can last for for hundreds, even thousands, or tens of thousands of years depending on the size of the crater. 
and also depending on the porosity of the surface, but I don't want to get too technical here. The point is, is that we're talking about water that is much is going to be as warm as freezing, 273 Kelvin or warmer, and it's also going to potential of being liquid for long periods of time. And the reason time is interesting is because everything takes time, especially when it comes to life. And the reason we care about Titan's chemistry is because even though it's not life, it can help us understand how you get from prebiotic to biotic, how you can go from just chemistry to something alive. And if we could go there, say go to an impact crater and sample this, this ice, it, we don't expect there to be liquid water there now. But what's important to recognize, to recognize is that we could pick a crater and we could say there probably was liquid water there. there. And now whatever chemistry that would have formed is now frozen into that ice, like in a preserved time capsule in a way that we could go and sample. And that's really the basis behind this, the new frontiers, the proposed new frontiers mission called Dragonfly, which is being led by uh, Dr. Zippy Turtle or Elizabeth Turtle at APL and John, Johns Hopkins. And it's actually not not funded just yet, but it's in the final stages of competing against one other uh, mission called CESAR, which is a comet sample return mission. And we'll actually know by July whether or not that's going to get funded. But it's it's primary ob objective is to go and sample the surface, investigate the surface for biomolecules that might exist in the ice. And this could be revolutionary when it comes to understanding the origin of life on Earth and in general. As much as you maybe know about the um, dragonfly, you said, as you said, cryovolcanoes is probably not the best place to look, but Impact Craze is going to offer a much better idea of finding organics that are probably preserved in ice by now. So, Do you know if that if Dragonfly Mission is targeting a specific crater, or is it at the moment it's just they're wanting just to sample the surface? So our advisor, Dr. Catherine Niche, actually corrected me because I, I have a bias as, an, as somebody who studies impact craters. She corrected me to make, help me understand that even though impact craters are probably more interesting as far as as far as the timelines we're talking about versus, say, a cryovolcano, it doesn't mean we're going to restrict ourselves to impact craters. If, if we are able to land somewhere near an impact crater and a cryovolcano, well then sure, we're gonna, they're going to say we. They. <laughs> I'm talking we as a scientific community here. But they are going to go and they're going to look for at both of them. I mean, understanding the stages is important. If you can get a sample of ice that isn't as fresh or isn't wasn't as warm, it's still going to tell us something. So sure, they're going to they're gonna go, they're probably going to try and sample it, and they're going to try to investigate that type of ice too. They're gonna, they don't want to restrict themselves. But as far as what I would the argument that I'm hoping that we're that I'm hope that I think they're making here is that impact craters are probably the best target to look for, um, and should probably be the center of the center focus, at least in my opinion. <clears throat> and uh, something that I've been thinking about is you are likely to be modeling a lot of the activity that goes on in these craters, but given that it's an extremely cold situation and chemistry often happens proportional to how hot things are. I imagine these are very, very slow processes we're talking about. So I guess you hinted a bit on what my my project is and how it all relates to this. So I mentioned before that the water is going to freeze and that frozen ice sort of collects the chemistry like as like a time capsule, preserves it. Um, and but even though it is cold now, it's important to recognize that when it was still liquid, it liquid, it's gonna be it's still gonna be very warm. It's gonna be above freezing probably in the craters. Because I mean that's just what happens. If you're at about one ATM, one atmospheric pressure, and the water's melted, it's probably gonna be 
around freezing or higher. So we're, it's going to be more on par with what we're talking about on Earth as far as the chemistry goes. As things cool, sort of things are going to slow down. But that takes time, and we have a pretty good understanding, at least, of how quickly they're going to freeze. So, no, I don't think it's necessarily true to say that in, even in impact craters, the chemistry is going to be slower. But in, in cryovolcanoes, sure, that is a, entirely a problem. Not only is it going to be colder, these are much thinner. We're talking maybe 10 meters as opposed to hundreds of meters. And because of that, they're, they're hypothesized to freeze on the order of a year or years as opposed to thousands of years or even hundreds of years. So the chemistry would be slower and much not last nearly as long. But... I still I think that's one reason why craters are still such a great opportunity because because not only are they long lasting they're going to be they're going to be warm they're going to have the chemistry we need it's it's just it, when you think about from understanding the origin of life it is hard to believe that we have such a perfect opportunity right in front of us just waiting for us to go there and investigate yeah and if let's say a Meteorite does strike the surface of Titan now and does form like a relatively big sized crater and then it melts some water ice. Do you think you it would have the conditions it needs to maybe spark something or is it still is there still something it's lacking? That's a big question because we, all we have to go on is Earth, really, and the origin of life. And well, we don't know the origin of life that well on Earth. We have some lines of evidence as far as how quickly it formed. Some things suggest it took a billion years. Some evidence suggests it may have taken a few hundred million years. Still, we're talking a long period of time. And even just a hundred years, or even if we were to say the lifetime of the impact crater melt being tens of thousands of years, that's still very short. To be fair, we don't know. And if we... It's also important to recognize that when we try to simulate these things on Earth, that it's hard to watch the origin of life because whatever form is going to be, it's going to be, it's not going to be very advanced. It's going to be very simple life, something that's not going to be very, very good at what it does. And when you think about that in a natural environment where you have life that's evolved over billions of years to basically thrive in its environment, it's going to scoop up anything before it has a chance to be able to defend itself. Meaning, who knows, that it is a good opportunity to go and look at this fresh pool of, of primordial goo that should have the stuff of life. Would life form very quickly? And if so, how simple is it going to be? I think that is one of the best ways of investigating it there. I want to actually rewind also to something you you kind of mentioned much earlier that I'm, I'm I'm thinking about a lot now is that when I mentioned oxygen as this part that we I guess kind of assume is always necessary for life that's also maybe based on a pretty strict and potentially arbitrary definition of what life is. Um, what kind of alternative substances could be taking the role of oxygen in a situation like Titan? Oh. As far oh I don't know so I I did spend this last semester teaching astrobiology ES three thousand and one and the uh, in place of my advisor who's away on uh, maternity leave and so I do have a bit of background there but not the best <laughs> That's okay. um, oxygen is is pretty important when it comes to the chemistry not necessarily breathing I because when we think about what life needs the easy way to think of it is schnapps C H N O P S um, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. And um, these are the big components that we need for life as we know it. When it comes to some of them, like, say, phosphorus, it's been hypothesized that something like uh, arsenic, I think it is, 
can su- can supplement for for phosphorus when I think that's just because it's right below phosphorus in the elemental table. Mm. Silicon might can replace carbon, um, but as far as it can anything replace oxygen, I don't remember seeing anything talking about that. I, I think oxygen is a pretty important role. Carbon, of course, is the most important one. But even before there was oxygen in the atmosphere, they had ways of getting it. Now, I, I'm not an expert here. I'm not a biologist. I haven't taken biology since uh, high school. And so I'm, I'm not entirely sure if I'm forgetting something. But I, I'm pretty sure oxygen plays a pretty important role. Um, I'm trying to think. That because there, it's important to recognize that there, it, when it comes to what you're feeding on, you don't necessarily need oxygen. There are different types of metabol- metabolic metabolistic pro- processes yeah. that, that things can take and maybe I am wrong to think that it necessarily needs oxygen but uh, from my understanding it's a very important aspect of it mm-hmm. especially when we think about amino acids the reason we think these are interesting is because it needs to get quote unquote oxygenated and before that the chemistry isn't nearly as interesting Yeah. if we think about it, chemistry or life inside of, of methane that's a different question. We can begin to hypothesize different types of meta- meta- metabolic processes and the type of chemical structures that could survive there. But even there, I mean, no matter what you could hypothesize, I, I would bet money there probably isn't life in the methane lakes because those things, I believe, they, they tend to alternate between the North Pole and the Southern Pole. They're not very stable. You need a stable environment for life to thrive. Um, and I, I don't think Titan is necessarily that. Titan is interesting because of its opportunity to to understand the origin of life and maybe even or originate life, but not necessarily for life to thrive. There are other moons, like say Jupiter's moon Europa, which has an like uh, it seems to have a liquid ocean and a very a very stable environment that that could let life thrive and evolve over time. But Titan is not necessarily that. That does not mean it's not interesting. Oh yeah. There's a mission heading to Europa sometime this decade, if I'm not there mistaken. There is. It's right? called Europa Clipper. It's set to leave, I believe, in 2025, maybe 2023. It's been alternating. But the goal there is to investigate it more closely. Galileo went back in the 1990s. Its imager failed, which meant we was a big part of it that we didn't get to understand. But our goal is to, or their goal, uh, it's as much our goal as it is yours as well, Gavin, as you're a part of our team, um, the scientific team, that is is to investigate the, the biology, not biology, excuse me, to investigate the ice, the the, comp- the geology, the composition is a big one, especially when you think about, about life. I, I'm going on a tangent real quick, but when it comes to life, the, the nutrients we need, schnapps, we need to understand what nutrients are available on the surface, and then we can begin to understand how things will cycle through. Because as far as whether or not there's water, sure, there's plenty of water, and there's a lot of plenty, plenty of chemistry, there's plenty of of oxygen for life to feed on. But is there phosphorus? Is there sulfur? Those are questions we don't know yet. And the chemistry, the composition, will tell us a lot. And then we're also going to be looking at things like using radar to investigate the ice because the understanding the, the, the geology in the layer of ice, which were thought to be anywhere between 5 to 30 kilometers thick, I would pro- suggest probably 15 kilometers from, from the experts that I've heard. But it's still going to be some things going on there as far as pockets of water, overturn. And that's also important when we ask ourselves what type of life would we, what, what type of things we might expect to see on the surface. Because if there is overturn, there is life in the subsurface, you might be able to see remnants of that, whether it be chemical, biological, or something of that nature on the surface or even through a plume.
Hmm. Uh, a lot of these sand particles that would say end up in uh, methane like before it freezes over. Do they end up in a specific layer of ice? Do they end up in a band okay. recognizably? So, or? To, so first off, you said in, in a methane lake that freezes over. It's not the methane that's freezing. Because remember, the methane is stable at these temperatures. Right. Yeah. It's the liquid water layers. And yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So um, when we think about how water freezes, basically, if you assume that the, the, the sand is, is mixing and dissolving into the water and mixing perfectly in that perfect situation... As things freeze, it's gonna ice tends to force out the impurities because ice likes to, to freeze nat purely. It, some of the freshest water you can get is from is from melting water. That's why glaciers glacial water is so clean. Um, and because of that, when you think about where these molecules would be, they're probably gonna be beneath the ice, basically in a thick a thin layer where the that liquid water basically gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You can't see me, but I'm making gestures with my hands where it's like you have a, forming a very thin lens in the middle where everything's gonna be concentrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, to plug my, my current project, my project is to understand whether or not that assumption is true, because if you look at Antarctic ice, things do freeze into ice. And what I wanna do is I want to, to model the, basically the molecular level, the, the way in which these molecules will freeze into ice, and whether or not they're gonna be entirely forced out, and whether or not the amount of stuff that's frozen in the upper layers of ice will be enough to even investigate. But even if they're not, Dragonfly's goal is to make use of these methane rivers that naturally cut into the ice to dig into the surface to where the molecules will be concentrated deeper down. Mm. And and that, in, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. And I was just going to say, and that's what your PhD focus is. That's what my first project is. My entire scope of my PhD isn't quite nailed down yet, but for the first project, it's going to be it's going to be modeling these melt ponds and the way that the ice and the molecules interact. It, the overall motivation here is that if Mo- Dragonfly gets gets funded, I would like to be able to help constrain how they target uh, a, a crater, where they would target, and how they would sample. And basically, basically try to make predictions on the concentration of materials at any layer in the melt li- melt lens, and give you some idea on the timelines at which they froze at any one point. Okay, uh, this has like been is definitely a topic that we could probably go on for hours i think anything anytime it actually okay, comes up it. with me <laughs> <laughs> well unfortunately we are uh, coming out uh, to the end of our time but before we do go if anyone wanted to contact you josh to learn more about titan astrobiology or about your project modeling uh, sure. water ice uh, where could they contact you you can find me on twitter at jjosh underscore h or on my website at jjoshh.com oh there we go so if you have any more questions about astrobiology or titan Go give Josh your questions. So thank you for listening. This has been your hosts, Gavin Tolometti and... Connor Chato. Uh, talking with PhD student Josh Hesper from the Department of Earth Sciences. Uh, this has been GradCast, the official podcast and radio show by the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. You can catch us on CHRW at 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. If you would like to note, more about behind the scenes of GradCast, you can follow us at GradCast Radio on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to know more about the committee and our episodes and podcasts, you can find us all the information at gradcast.ca. Or if you'd like to learn more about the show and maybe come on to the come on to the show as a guest, you can contact us at, at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Uh, thank you for listening and have a good night. Thanks for listening.
The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.